This is session 24 in our uh, course, A Better Brand of Happiness, and this session continues our study of Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Specifically, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 14 together. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, and follow along as I read this text. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus. This is our text, and as I mentioned, we'll focus on verses 12 through 14 for the most part in today's session, but I do want to quickly review what's gone before because this is one paragraph of Scripture. And so my big idea statement for this paragraph is, believers should rejoice in the Lord instead of putting our confidence in our own human efforts. And we began by looking at Paul's command to rejoice in the Lord in verses 1 through 3. It's a command that he repeated from chapter 2, verse 18. And I said that rejoicing in the Lord means to get your joy, your confidence, your meaning in life from your relationship with Jesus, from your union, your, your union with Christ, as the um, technical theological term would have it, instead of anything else. And Paul says that part of this in verses 2 through 3 is, involves watching out for false teachers. And that's because false teachers will try to move you away from finding your joy, your meaning in life from Christ, and put it in something else, particularly your own human efforts, all right? So that's what verses uh, 2 and 3 describe. To watch out means to guard against, in verse 2, and that means guarding against false teaching because it wants to swindle us out of Christ, the only thing of true value we have, according to verse 3. And so then continuing forward, Paul explained in verses 4 through 7, how he knows that rejoicing in Christ as Lord is better 
than having confidence in human accomplishments. And that's because Paul did the human accomplishment thing. He, was, he uh, started out with a pedigree as a uh, Jewish man that was impressive to begin with. And he added on top of that um, living a religious life that any Jewish man would, um, or any Jewish person would find impressive. He had an impeccable Jewish background, which he described in verse 5, and then he had impeccable or at least uh, very impressive human performance in verses 5 and 6. And then he states in verse 7 that knowing Christ required him to reject all of that. The verse, verse 7 begins with the word but. And Paul says, I came to the point in my life where I had to seriously reevaluate what was important to me, religiously speaking. And based on what he knows now in verse 7, he says his religious credentials were not something that made him closer to God. They were actually a barrier to knowing Christ. And then in verses 8 through 11, Paul explains how Christ and knowing him surpasses his previous religious accomplishments. And I told you that verses 8 through 11 are one long, complicated sentence in the original Greek. And the point of the sentence is to say how much better it is to know Christ than it is to perform well religiously or anything else that someone might put their confidence in, humanly speaking. Knowing Christ, according to verse 8, is more valuable than anything else. And that's because, according to verse 9, the righteousness that Christ gives to Christians is more valuable than anything else. In verses 10 through 11, Paul says the goal of all of this is to know Christ. That's the point of religion, right? It's to know God. And Paul says, I want to know Christ. And the only way to know Christ is to stop worrying about, or stop being so impressed with yourself and instead to put your focus on him and what he's done for us. And so in verse 8, Paul began describing his goal to know Christ. Now in verses 10 through 11, he picks up the topic of that goal again. And he describes that the knowledge that he wants of Christ is not intellectual knowledge only, but it's experiential knowledge. It's knowledge that comes into his intellect by the word of God, by the revelation of God's truth, but one that works out in his experience. And I said that what Paul describes in these verses, verses 10 and 11, are his perseverance in the faith, the perseverance that God calls all true Christians to have. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. It's another thing to keep believing in Jesus Christ and keep becoming like him, despite all of the pressures that the world brings on you, despite all of the internal temptations that you face as a person who um, has a sin nature, and despite all of the persecutions that come in this world. And Paul says, I want to know Christ, meaning I want to become holy like Jesus is in my experience, no matter what happens to me in my life. And that's what he describes in verses 10 through 11. So I pick up then uh, this morning in verse 11. I touched on it somewhat last time, but I want to continue to look at it a little bit more closely. And so Philippians chapter 3, verse 11 says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul here describes the final goal of the Christian life, the point at which every believer will truly know Christ personally in our experience. That is when we are raised from the dead and we are given perfect bodies then we will actually become in real life what Christ declares us to be in Jesus Christ by His grace. Now notice in verse 11, Paul says, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And the word somehow seems to interject interject some doubt into the equation. It almost sounds like Paul is saying, yes, I I, I believe that Christ is my righteousness and my Lord. He talks about all of this in our passage. 
but he almost sounds like he's saying, but I still hope that I get there, all right? So in other words, he talks about the certainty of knowing Christ, but then he seems to interject some doubt here in verse 11. So what's going on with this? And the truth is that the word somehow really doesn't express any uncertainty as much as it expresses Paul's humility. Because Paul is going to go on in the verses we'll look at following this in today's session to express how far he still has to go, how he says, I haven't made it yet. And so the the phrase somehow is expressing his humility, his acknowledgement that he still is far less than what he should be or could be by the grace of God. When someone's faith is in Christ, of course, that person is saved because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to them by the grace of God. And that means there is no doubt that a believer will be raised with Christ. The fact that there is no doubt comes from the reliability of God and his promises, not from the quality of your faith or even the quality of your perseverance in grace. However, there are plenty of warnings in Scripture about the dangers of false assurance. See, this is what is being balanced in this passage. On one hand, it's the assurance that we have everything in Christ that we will ever need to be justified before God. But the Bible also warns us that there are plenty of people who have confidence in their salvation who really aren't saved. And so this phrase, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead, signals the fact that we really shouldn't get too complacent and get too convinced that we're saved. Let me get into this a little bit more. There are plenty of warnings in Scripture, as I said, about the dangers of false assurance following Christ, that is, knowing Christ in your experience by perseverance, growing in your faith and in your obedience to him. That's the outgrowth of the new life that God gives you. It's not how you get saved. It's what happens to you when you are saved. But it does demonstrate whether or not you're truly saved because everyone in Christ, everyone that Christ saves, he also empowers to live the Christian life. And Paul alluded to this earlier in this passage when he talks about the power of his resurrection. That's the gift that God gives to every Christian. He gives you the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has been given to every believer to follow Christ and to become like Christ and to live for Christ. But many people think that they're saved because they prayed a prayer. They think they've followed a formula that gets them saved, much like filling out life insurance paperwork properly and sending in the check means that you'll have life insurance for your heirs after you die. People think, well, I've done all the things. I've checked all the boxes, so therefore I'm in. I'm saved. And these people can tell you that they, they can, I mean, they have some experiential data too. They can tell you um, about a time in their life when they felt guilty about their sin. And after they trusted Jesus, they felt that guilt relieved. Or they can even, in many cases, point to the fruit of, of a spiritual life. In other words, people that they brought to Christ or answers to prayers that they had when they were following Christ or knowledge that they accumulated from going to church. I've met tons of people like this who said, yeah, they're not living for Jesus today. They don't go to church. They don't read the scriptures. They don't, they're, they're living sinful lives, but they can look back at their life and say, but I prayed to accept Jesus and I felt relief from my guilt and I brought people to Christ and I learned things from the Bible. This, this is how they try to convince themselves and us that they are truly Christians. So what do we make of people like this? 
Well, someone like this may believe that they're saved. They may have a sense of confidence, a sense of assurance about their faith. But if they stop following Jesus, if they don't persevere in faith and good works, the Bible says their claim to faith is false. Every true believer will continue to follow Christ in faith and good works. Not perfectly, but for the rest of our lives. And the Apostle Paul had complete assurance of his salvation, as every Christian should. But he was also humble enough to know that his faith would only be proved genuine by a life that was completed in following Jesus, no matter what. The resurrection from the dead is nothing to be complacent about or arrogant about. Think about this. Judas Iscariot did more for Jesus Christ than you or I ever will. And yet the Bible says when he died, he went to his own place. Why? Because he turned his back on Christ. He did not continue following Christ. He betrayed Jesus and ultimately died in unbelief. The problem with with Judas Iscariot isn't that he was saved and lost his salvation. It's that he had a false assurance of salvation. His faith really wasn't in Christ. And so his fate, that is Judas's fate, is not resurrection to eternal life. He is not going to attain to the resurrection of the dead that Paul talks about in verse 11. Instead, he'll be raised and then confined to eternal damnation, the second death, the Bible calls it. And so what Paul's expressing here is saying, listen, your confidence should be in Jesus and you should have assurance of your salvation, but don't get complacent in your life to saying, well, I've done enough and so I, need, I can quit worrying about it because I know I'll be there on the day of judgment. Nobody really knows that in the fullest experience of the word because until we follow Christ through the, throughout our lives, there's always the chance that we could have a false assurance of salvation. And other passages of scriptures that I won't get into, Paul even indicates this, that he himself needed to persevere. Now in verses 12 through 14, Paul describes the daily reality of his pursuit of Christ. The previous verses, going from, say, verse 7 all the way through verse 11, describe sort of theologically where Paul's um, life is, what he is striving for as a Christian, what he wants. He wants to know Christ ultimately. But in verses 12 and following, he describes what what it looks like on the ground in his daily life. And what he tells us is that despite his goal to know Christ, which he described in verse 10, remember in verse 10 he says, I want to know Christ. Despite that goal, he tells us in verses 12 through 13, he hasn't made it yet. He's not there yet. Remember verse 12? Look at verse 12. Not that I've already attained all this. Paul's saying my goal is to know Christ, but I haven't obtained it yet. My daily experience is still pursuing that goal. And verse 12 says, not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal. The phrase all this in verse 12 is probably too broad of a translation. It doesn't describe everything that Paul is saying in verses 8 through 11. It's really just describing um, the knowledge of Christ that he wants, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, as he put it in verse 8. He's telling us again, that while his goal is to know Christ in his experience, he hasn't fully arrived yet. In other words, he does not yet know perfect spirituality. He still struggles with sin. The great apostle, some 30 years after he became a Christian, 
who started so many churches and led so many people to Christ and suffered so much because of his testimony of Jesus and boldly continued to declare Christ despite all that he had suffered. This man says, I still struggle with sin. I haven't attained perfect Christ-likeness yet. He does not yet know perfect spirituality. He still struggles with sin and he's not completely holy yet in his experience in the way that Christ is and was holy in his experience. That is, obedience to God. The next phrase in verse 12, or have already arrived at my goal, goes on to describe uh, or it it clarifies what Paul means by obtaining all this. It's a, a word that sort of restates in a clearer way what verse 12 began with. Although he knows Christ now in a real sense, he does not yet completely know Christ in this life. We won't know that until we're raised in our bodies on the last day. Paul's saying he has not yet reached perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect Christ-likeness in his life. But, in verse 12 goes on to say, he is pursuing all that a relationship with Christ promises for the believer. Verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In just a very compact statement, Paul describes so much about what the Christian life really looks like on a daily basis. He's pursuing all that a relationship with Christ promises for the believer. The phrase, I press on in verse 12b, is a hunting term that means to hunt down, to pursue. It's also used in foot races to describe someone who is racing toward the finish line without quitting. In other words, Paul is describing his continued pursuit of Christ-likeness in this life. And commentators, as I already suggested, believe that Paul had been a Christian for some 30 years before he wrote this epistle to the Philippians. Yet he had to admit that despite 30 years of following Christ, he still had a ways to go. There was still room in his life. There were still thoughts that were not conformed to godliness yet. There were still sins in his life that had to be dealt with. At the end of verse 12, he describes the ultimate goal that he was pursuing when he says, that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. This is so important. We have to keep all of these things in balance. We have to keep all of these things in mind when we describe the Christian life. Everything we are as Christians are gifts of God's grace to us. I am perfect in Jesus Christ. Not because of me, but because Jesus is perfect and his perfections have been applied to me by the grace of God. But my perfection in Christ is nothing to be complacent about because God wants me to become who he says I am in Jesus. He wants my reality to measure up to what Christ declares me to be. And that's what Paul is saying at the end of verse 12 when he says, that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That phrase, took hold of me, describes the beginning of salvation, but also its purpose. Your salvation began not when you figured it out and decided to follow Jesus based on your own volition and will. No, your salvation began when Christ took hold of you. That is, when Christ grabbed you by the grace of God and rescued you from the mess you were making of your life, and me too, the wrath of God that we deserve for all of our rebellions and sins against God. We were drowning 
in the wrath of God because of the evil things that we had done and the evil beliefs that were carrying us. And like a lifeguard grabs and rescues a drowning swimmer, Jesus Christ rescued us from our sin and its consequences when we were saved. That's what Paul is saying when he says, Christ took hold of me. But there was a purpose for it. There's a purpose that Christ had in your salvation. Yes, it was to save you from God's wrath. That's an important purpose. But the lifeguard who saves you from drowning in real life puts you back on land and lets you go on and live the life that you were living before. That's not what Christ does. Christ has a deeper purpose. It's not only to save you from the wrath of God. It's also to remake you into a holy person. Paul says, this is what I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing God's ultimate goal in saving me, to make me holy. Paul is saying, I haven't yet become the person Christ saved me to be yet. But I'm working on it. I'm pursuing it. I'm hunting it down. Like a hunter chasing after an animal he wants to take down, or a runner who's trying to cross the finish line. He was working diligently to become holy and Christ-like in his life. In verse 13, Paul says, despite not having met this goal yet, he was determined to get there. Verse 13 describes his determination to reach the goal of godliness in his life. Verse 13 says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. These words describe his determination to get there, despite the fact that he still had a ways to go. The word consider in verse 13, when he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself, is a word of logic, it's a word of judgment. Paul is evaluating his life, and he's looking at all the evidence, and he says, I'm not there yet, I haven't reached the goal. He concludes that he has not yet become everything Christ saved him to be, yet, But he was determined to get there by the grace of God, as verse 13b shows. And his determination shows in his forgetfulness about the past. Verse 13 says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself, when I evaluate myself, I know I'm not there yet. I haven't taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, the phrase forgetting what is behind does not refer to Paul's Jewish accomplishments. He described those earlier in the passage in verses 4 through 6, but that's not what he's talking about here. When Paul says, I forget what's behind, he's saying like a runner who does not look over his shoulder to see who's behind him or how close they are or how far he has come. Paul says, my my determination in the present does not take into account what's happened in the past. In other words, this forgetfulness is not about his pre-Christian Jewish religious successes described in verses 4 through 6. Instead, it refers to his accomplishments as a Christian. Paul did not give himself all kinds of credit for how far he had come in Christ in his life. He doesn't say, look at all the churches I've started. Look how much persecution I've suffered. Look how many people I've won to Christ. Look how much knowledge I've accumulated. Look how many books of the Bible I've written. Paul wasn't focused on that at all. And yet, I meet many Christians who are. They're very complacent about their personal current lack of holiness, their current lack of pursuit of Christ. But they can say, but I've done all this stuff in the past. And Paul says, look, I don't care about that. I forget about all that stuff. Instead, verse 13 says, I'm straining toward what is ahead. 
He's determined. And his determination shows in the effort that he expends to reach the goal in the present. We see that at the end of verse 13 when he says, Straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. Straining toward what is ahead literally means in the Greek to stretch out, to stretch forward. It describes the kind of lurch forward that you see a runner in a sprint doing when he's trying to hit the tape first. Paul was not at all complacent about what he had done or where, how far he had come. He was giving every bit of effort toward finishing the race, as he uses uh, as language he uses in other passages of Scripture. He pressed on toward the goal, according to verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. This is a phrase that press on toward the goal means to run straight. It means to keep focused on the goal and to keep moving directly toward it, just like a runner who doesn't, you know, take a side little picnic, you know, stop off on the side and take a picnic, right? He keeps moving straight forward. It's like the story of the tortoise and the hare, where the, the hare starts out running well and then decides to take a nap. So he pulls off to the side and stops running. Whereas the hare is slow as he was as a turtle. He kept going. Paul's saying, I'm more like the hare. In this case, I'm continuing to go forward. I'm not complacent about how far I've come. And at the end of verse 14, he describes what the goal is. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The prize is eternal life, but it's God's calling. See, you see how both the grace of God in saving him, God calling him, and in causing him to become like Christ and persevering. They're both at play here. They're both part of the Christian experience. As Christians, God calls us to follow him. And by his grace, he gives us a, a heart that understands the gospel and desires to follow Jesus Christ. But he calls us to continue following him every day. And eternal life is, in a sense, a prize that comes when the grace of God is fully activated in your life, turning you from your sin to believe in Jesus, but also empowering you to follow Jesus in your life. And this means his goal is the same as God's goal. His goal and God's goal are completely aligned because God's the one who called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. And so we'll come to this later in another session, but in verse 15, he says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. See, Paul isn't saying, I'm an exceptional case. I'm such a great Christian that this is how I live, but the rest of you, you know, do what you can. No, he's saying, this is how Christians should operate. That no matter how we make our living, and no matter where we live on earth, no matter what our giftedness is in terms of spiritual gifting to serve Christ or what our opportunities are to serve Christ, we're really all pursuing the same goal. Christ has saved us by his grace and he put us on a path in a race to become like him. And as we go about our daily experience, making a living and having a family and raising our families and following all of the parts of life that go along with living, our ultimate goal is to become like Jesus. And when we're raised from the dead, 
and stand before Christ. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Our only standing will be because of what Christ has given to us by his grace. But our accomplishments are part of that grace. It is the grace of God that enables us and drives us to follow Jesus Christ in our lives. This is the kind of life that Paul is urging us to have in this gospel, in this uh, epistle. He's saying as Christians, we should not be complacent about the fact that God has done everything that we need in Christ to save us. You know, that truth should compel us to want to become more like Jesus Christ. And despite how far we might have come in the Christian life, our daily experience is I want to know Christ in my experience. I want to live for Him in my life. And as I live for him, despite whatever I face in life, as I live for him, I'll know a deeper sense of faith and a greater sense of his presence and what it means to become a godly person in this life. This is a better brand of happiness. It's not a happiness that says, Jesus saved me and so I've got my life insurance policy all set. Now I can do whatever I want. I can be as sinful as I want or as self-centered as I want. No, it's saying, when Christ saved me, everything that used to be important to me, everything that other people care about who are unbelievers, suddenly seemed not only not that important, they seemed like garbage, they seemed like crap, like to use a word that he used earlier in this passage, compared to knowing Christ. And that's what we all should be pursuing as Christians. And we should be humble enough to realize we're not there yet. No matter how far we've come, no matter how much we've done for Jesus, there are still areas of remaining sin in our thinking, in our desires. Our service for Christ is often half-hearted. It's incomplete. But following Christ the way that God wants us to follow him. Is something that should be an ongoing project every day. Why do we read the scriptures every day? Why do we develop these habits of holiness where we read and study the scriptures and apply them to ourselves and pray for the grace of God in our lives and the lives of other people? Why do we look for opportunities to encourage people to do what's right in the sight of God, that is, other Christians? Why do we look for opportunities to share our faith in Jesus Christ? Because all of these things are part of following Christ. They're part of what it means to know Him in our experience. And this is a better brand of happiness. Believers should rejoice in the Lord. You see how much richer rejoicing in the Lord means than what it sounds like on the surface? All of this thing, all of these things that have been described are what rejoicing in the Lord is about gives you a, a goal in your life that is deeper and more profound than any other goal could possibly be. Rejoicing in Christ means I want to be like Him in my experience and experience Him in my life. So believers should rejoice in the Lord instead of putting our confidence in our own human efforts. And I hope thinking through these, passage, these uh, verses and um, comparing, thinking about how our lives often we do get complacent in our lives. I hope it'll help us to refocus as Christians. 
to realize what it means to have a better brand of happiness, a happiness that is found in Christ and in pursuing Him, rather than all of the other things that this world offers us. This is a better brand of happiness.